that sometimes we're not exactly proud of. Uh, You usually hope that they're on your spouse's side uh, rather than your own, uh, but all of us have those family members that we're not too pumped up about. And uh, even though you love them, you're actually quite glad that they live, you know, several states away, and you only have to deal with them maybe once uh, every other year because you alternate kind of back and forth. Now, I would ask you uh, how many of you have relatives like that, and you could raise your hand, but they may actually be here today, so uh, we don't want you to do that. But uh, many of us have relatives. In fact, uh, if we weren't recording this, I could tell you some stories about some of my relatives. Um, We all have them who uh, sometimes are just dysfunctional, or they might be talking about us right now and saying that we're dysfunctional. And uh, one of the things that we've discovered over the past couple of weeks is that Jesus had a lot of strange characters that were a part of his family tree. Not necessarily in his immediate family, but in uh, his extended family, in his uh, lineage. And so what we've done over the past couple of weeks is to study Jesus' genealogy by looking at the book of Mark, or the book of Matthew. And Matthew uh, begins uh, with this genealogy list, all of these names. It's not a real exciting way to kind of start uh, a book. I mean, you know, there's no New York bestsellers that they start with this whole lineage of people and it sells books. Usually you have to have some kind of story uh, connected to it. And the problem with Matthew, uh, and Matthew's the first book of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, is that as he writes this, he doesn't write it by including uh, heroes of Jesus's lineage, but he actually uh, writes about some of those who were lawbreakers and lusters and losers, people who had flubbed up and messed up and screwed up. These were R-rated characters. These were people who had crazy backgrounds, and some of them did some really, really awful things. And this morning, as we continue to look at Jesus' family tree, I want us to look at the person who is probably most closely associated with Jesus. And this guy... You would think if it was most closely associated that Matthew would write about all the wonderful things that this guy had done, but he doesn't. He talks about his failures. Matthew's writing these names of people and he puts on the brakes, kind of in the middle of it all, and he pauses and he says, I want you to think about this one particular character. I mean, it's almost like he uh, points him out and he just pulls out all the ugly that he's ever done in his life. It's like Matthew is kind of cheering right in the middle of this long list of people, and he's saying, U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, you ugly. What, what, you ugly. Yeah. And it's like Matthew takes all this ugly, and he just puts it into this list and into this guy's life. And in one season of this guy's life, he had incredible failure. He had character failure, morality failure, ethics failure. For example, he was so insecure 
and overwhelmed one time that he lied about something, and that lie caused over 80 priests to be murdered. This was a guy who betrayed one of his closest friends, and he had him actually then put to death. This is a guy who ran around on his wife. This is a guy who destroyed his family. That even his own kids were at war against him. And there were many embarrassing moments and failures in this guy's life. And yet, this is the man who is most closely associated with Jesus. So you want to learn about him? Well, let's look. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 in Matthew, this is what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of who? What's it say? David. So the person most closely associated with Jesus in his family tree is David. Now we know that as Matthew is writing this, he knows that Jesus is not David's son, not his actual son. But he's the great, 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 great grandson of David. But right at the top of his list, like if you're going to associate somebody with you, you put them right next to you, and this person is David. Now look at how he kind of positions David in this lineage. It says this, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, when we get to that person of Judah, what did we learn? We learned that Judah slept with his daughter-in-law. Like, that was his claim to fame. He slept with his daughter-in-law. Messed up, he's right there in Jesus' family tree. So it goes on. So Judah, the father of Perez, so Perez is this daughter-in-law's son, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And if you remember from last week, who was Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute. So you have one person in the family tree who slept with his daughter-in-law, and then now we have a prostitute that's in Jesus' genealogy. So Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father, we get a descriptor here, of king, so he's an actual king, King David. David was the father of Solomon, and Matthew should have went ahead and gone on and said, and Matthew was the, or Solomon was the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the father of, and it goes on, but that's not what it says. What's it say? It says instead, Matthew pauses, and he says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Can we talk about that in church? Say what? It says 
David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was another man's wife. What? Now just think, you're Matthew. You're writing this in the first century. You're trying to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah, that He's the Christ. And so, as you're trying to convince them, you want to put everyone in there that's good and heroic. And King David, you don't want to put up this, you know, black eye uh, out there. What you want to do is you want to talk about David's good points. David the builder, David the poet, David the warrior, David the shepherd boy. I mean, there are many wonderful things that Matthew could have said about David. But he pulls out like the darkest, ugliest season of his life. And you're like, what are you thinking, Matthew? Why would you put that in? He puts all the dysfunction, all the junk right there. I mean, this is the worst chapter in David's life. And Matthew makes it front and center. So the question then becomes, why would Matthew draw attention to King David's biggest failure? Like, why would he do that? Why would he draw attention to him? Because that's the point of the story. You see, the point of the story in the Gospel of Matthew is showing that Jesus not only came for sinners, he was totally God, but he came from sinners. He came from people who were messed up. And who had flubbed up in life. So Matthew takes this very Jewish audience and he reminds them, and he reminds us today, that King David, the greatest king of Israel, who was the focal point of the kingdom, was a sinner in every sense of the word. He was a failure as a leader. He was a failure as a friend. He was a failure as a father. He was a failure as a husband. So you're ready to hear his story? Let's look at it. His story actually takes place a thousand years before Jesus was born. And there's this prophet, a guy by the name of Samuel, and a prophet is just like a a preacher, but Samuel was like one of the big preachers, kind of like Billy Graham or Joel Olstein. And God nudges him and he says, Samuel, I want you to go and to anoint a king. I want you to call a king, a child king. And he sends him to a little town, and I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and see if you can guess what town Samuel was sent to. So go ahead, check it out. It's like real quiet in this place right now. Somebody said Las Vegas. No, it's not Las Vegas. It was Bethlehem. So Bethlehem, folks, is not just where Jesus was born, but a thousand years before Jesus was born, we have this story of David. And it's a thousand years before, and this man named Samuel comes to David's dad named Jesse. And he says, I want you to get all the boys and bring them into the living room. We're going to line them all up because for one of these sons, I have a very special message. Now just think about it. Billy Graham 
or Joel Olstein or one of these big, you know, kind of preacher types comes to your house. I mean, he is ecstatic. He is excited. Jesse's like, oh man, I knew it, I knew it. And he thinks that it's his oldest son. Because in that culture, the oldest son was the most important. So he gets his oldest son and he brings him up and he knows that this kid is destined for greatness. You know, he was the class president. He was the quarterback of the football team. He was the homecoming king. You know what I mean? This guy was just destined for greatness. He was an up-and-coming CEO. He pulls up in his Lexus, you know, and he walks out, and he has like this commanding presence. And when he speaks, it's like everybody listens to him. And Jesse says, Prophet Samuel, this is my son, Eliab. And do you know what Eliab means in Hebrew? You demand. Not really. I have no idea what it means. But anyways, Jesse walks up and it's like, this is Eliab. And he the man. And all the elders, all the political leaders, they're all around. And they're like, yeah, he the man. And Samuel the prophet is there. And he looks and he's like, this guy has got it together. Three-piece suit, you know, looking good. He the man. And the Lord looks down at him and says, what? He not the man. They're like, whoa, Samuel's confused now. He's like, what are you talking about? This has got to be the man. He says, like, he's not the man. So he pulls up the second son, Abinadab. Guess what? He's not the man. He pulls up the third son. He's not the man. Pulls up the fourth son, not the man. Fifth son, not the man. Sixth son, not the man. Seventh man, seventh son, not the man. None of them are the man. And by this time, Samuel's like kind of wondering, hey God, what have you gotten me into? This is like a beauty contestant contest. You know what I mean? You got seven losers. None of them are the man. So Samuel asked Jesse, Jesse, do you have any more sons here? <laughs> Isn't that a crazy question to ask? Don't you think you would know if your kids were there? I mean, like, sometimes we like to leave them at stores. But, you know, most of the time we know at least that we have eight kids, right? And he asked, are these the only ones? Are are these the only ones? And almost as an afterthought, um, Jesse goes, well... There is the youngest. He doesn't even name him. He just says, the youngest one. And so they go out into the field and they find David. And they bring David in. And David has been out with the sheep. He smells like sheep. He is starting to act like sheep. And they bring him in. And he's got like a runny nose. He's like, you know, getting all his snot out. And all that kind of stuff. And he's kind of got this wild-eyed look like, hey, man. He's got pimples all over his face, you know, and he's looking kind of just wild. And they bring him in, and they're like, this is my son David. Hey! And it's unbelievable. But Samuel gets a word from God. 
And it says, He's a man. The snotty-nosed, pimple-faced punk, David, is the man. And Samuel's like, oh my goodness. So he goes ahead, he anoints him, he gets him ready for you know, his kingship, and they go off. And David goes off. He, he goes back to the sheep. If you're 15, you don't know anything about you know, king stuff. You just go back and you keep doing what you're doing. And you can read the rest of the story. Um, on your own. It's a really cool story. Well, eventually, several years go by. A lot of different circumstances transpire. And David, the snotty-nosed kid, actually does become the second king of Israel. And then some years go by, and one day, uh, David is in his palace, and he's like, man... I can't believe it. I made it. He's like in his palace and everyone's waiting on him. He's being cared for. And all of a sudden he goes to the window and he looks outside the window and he looks out there and he sees this tent. And this tent was the tabernacle. It was the place where God was worshipped. In fact, Israelites believed that the presence of God was in that tent. And David started thinking, he's like, here I am in a house and I'm being cared for, and the God that I worship is in a tent. So, if I'm living in a house, then God needs to be living in a house. And so David decides that he's going to build a temple. He goes to work, and he starts some fundraising, and gets some money, and gets some architects, and gets them all together. And then a second prophet comes, a guy by the name of Nathan. And he's got some good news for David, and he's got some bad news for David. And this is what Nathan is told by God. God says to Nathan in this next passage of Scripture, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. Now, before you walked in today, how many of you had ever heard of David before in your life? Raise your hand. Almost every hand. And so what does that tell us? That God said, you're never going to be forgotten. I mean, it's amazing that 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Jesus was born, Nathan tells David... David, I'm going to make your name great, just like the greatest men on earth. And by golly, that's exactly what he did. You are a part of that. You know his name because of what God did in his life. In verse 11, Nathan tells David this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Meaning, he's going to have a generational house. He's going to have generations of people that are going to be a part of of the lineage. Then he says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. So he says, Hey, you know what? In fact, your son, Solomon, is going to be a king. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He says, David, you're not going to build this temple, but your son is. 
And today you can go and you can see remnants of the temple, Solomon's temple. It goes on. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And this is very, very important. What's next? This will help some of you to understand and to finally put together what is the judgment of God and what is the love of God. And is God just a judging God, or is God just a loving God, or is God a God that both judges and loves? This next verse, what does it say? It says, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by human beings, with floggings inflicted by human hands. In other words, he says, David, when your people mess up, when they disobey, when they rebel against me, I will punish them because a good father disciplines his children. Now, we're not going to take a, a, a survey this morning, but you know parents who just let their kids get anything they want, whatever they want, and they're spoiled rotten, and Christmas comes and you can't buy them anything. Because there's never been any discipline in their life. They just kind of run the house. So he has to be a good father. If God's a good father, he will punish sometimes. But, verse 15, what's it say? But my love will... What's the next word? What? Say it again. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God gives King David an unconditional, eternal promise. You can't build the temple, but your throne, your name, your ancestors, your family, your lineage will have an eternal promise. But just like many human beings, just like me, just like you, David isn't just satisfied with that, but he wants something more. And David tests the patience of God in an extreme way that is unimaginable. The story tells us that one day David is on his balcony of his palace and he looks out and he sees this one particular female that's kind of over there and her name's Bathsheba. He's like, whoa, man, she's hot. And so he's like, hey, hey, servant, come here, come here, come here. Who is that? And, they, and the servant tells David, that is the general Uriah's wife. That's your general's wife. And David said, well, where, where's Uriah? Well, he's on the battlefield. He's fighting for you. Well, I want to talk to his wife. Well, the scripture basically says they did a little bit more than talk. You know what I mean? In fact, they hooked up for the night. And a few weeks later, she lets David know through a servant that she is pregnant now with his child. And now David has a mess on his hands. So David calls Uriah in from the battlefield and he brings him to the palace. He's like, hey, buddy, how's it going out there? And, you know, they're chumming around together real good. And he says, Uriah, I'll tell you what. Since you're already here in the city, why don't you just go home and spend some time there and tomorrow then you can go back to the field. 
And he sends Uriah out and he thinks, oh, he'll definitely go home. He'll be with Bathsheba. Everything will be good. And then David wakes up the next morning and he's informed that Uriah slept at the gate of the palace. He never went home. And David brings him in again. He's like, Uriah, why didn't you go home? You haven't seen your wife. You need to go. And Uriah says, how can I go home and spend time in the comforts of home when my troops are out fighting in the battlefield? And David says, well, why don't you just stay one more night? So he brings him back in the palace again, and he pulls out the good wine. I mean, not the cheap stuff. Good wine. And then he gets him drunk. And the next, uh, after he, he gets him kind of toasty, he goes, Uriah, why don't you just go home and spend the night at home, and the next day you can go with the men. Well, David gets up the next morning, and he discovers that once again, Uriah has spent the night, not at home, but at the gate of the palace. And he brings Uriah in. He's like, Uriah, why don't you go home? And he says, how can I go home and experience the comforts of that when there are men out there who are sweating and they're bleeding and they're dying for the battle? Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, if I were God, I would change the story. I would come down and I would say, David, you're gone. Adios. You're no longer king. Uriah, you're king. Because Uriah is the only one who's righteous. But God had made that unconditional promise. That those who would follow him, he would keep his promise. And then David, he has to keep his promise. And then David does something unimaginable. It's almost kind of like a Hollywood kind of script. David, in the privacy of his office, he writes a message to the commanding general, Joab, who is Uriah's superior. He writes this message down and he says, Joab, tomorrow in battle, I want you to put Uriah and all the men on the front line. His kind of you know, squad of people on the front line. And when they get to the front line, I want all of the other troops to withdraw and back away and leave them alone. And folks, you don't have to be a military genius to figure this out. But if you're in a big battle and they put you on the front line and then everyone else leaves, what's going to happen to you? He's going to die. And this is the weird... This is the... This is the Hollywood story. This is the heinous act. He takes this letter. He folds it up. He puts it in an envelope. He puts the king seal on it. And he gives it to Uriah to take to the battlefield. In other words, Uriah is taking his death sentence and he doesn't even know it. And he takes it and he gives it to Joab. And Joab receives this message, he obeys the king. And the next day in battle, when Uriah and his men are on the front line, everyone else withdraws and leaves him out there all alone. And the Bible says that Uriah and all of his men were killed in cold blood. Well, the message eventually gets back to Bathsheba and King David. And we hear that Bathsheba is mourning the loss of her husband. So 
she doesn't really know that this has happened. She's crying. She's overwhelmed. And then David marries her. Now, from David's perspective, he thinks everything's fine. Because think about it. He did this horrible act, but now the husband's dead. No one will know. This is a good secret. He can cover it up. I mean, it wasn't a good choice. It was bad ill, but everything will be covered up. No one will know. But who knows the whole story? God knows. God knows. And here's what the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. It says this, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And at this point, God has to make a decision. God has to make a decision whether or not he's going to go ahead and honor his promise that he made to him or take it back. I mean, you wouldn't blame God, would you? I mean, circumstances have changed now. David's really gone on the deep end. I mean, he has done this horrible thing. But God said, I gave you an unconditional promise. And in light, even of the circumstances, I will keep my promise. And the scripture says, and you can see it in Psalm 51 if you want to read it, David runs to the tabernacle. He weeps. He cries. He mourns. He confesses his sin. And God decides to forgive his sin. But God also humbles David. He gives him a punishment. The baby that David and Bathsheba have dies. The entire family falls apart. His sons start going to war against him. His favorite son is murdered by his oldest son. And his favorite general, Joab, kills his favorite son. His family is split apart. The kingdom is set apart. He had to move out of the palace at one time, and then his son does this unimaginable thing in front of all of the public. You can read it yourself, but David is gone. And through all the chaos, through all the bloodshed, through all this incredible personal disaster, God never withdraws his promise. Because even through the punishment that was brutal and the decision that was firm, God's promise was eternal. Even to the point that 990 years later, and this is what's so amazing, 990 years later, a man in the line of David named Joseph with his pregnant wife Mary made their way to the city of Bethlehem, which by the first century was known as the city of Guess what? David. And there she was to give birth to the great, 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 great grandson of King David because God keeps his promises. In fact, that's the central theme of David's life. It's the central theme of your life and my life that God keeps his promises. So, you see, if you're Matthew, 
And we remember Matthew's this tax collector. He basically took taxes for the Roman government. And he would go to his Jewish brothers and his Jewish citizens and he would tax them even higher. And he would take money. He was basically stealing from his own people. That if you, you had done that and you had been forgiven of those things and you had been forgiven by God, this is exactly the story that you want to put in Jesus' lineage. I mean, if you're getting ready to tell the greatest story ever told, you want to be able to put that in the family lineage. So that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every child could realize that the way that you come to God, folks, is not by what you do or what you don't do, but you come to God simply because of what He has done for you. If you're about to tell that story, you're going to let a whole group of people who hold David up to the highest level, because Jews did, they, they would have thought of him as a king. How could you skip not telling that story? Because this is a story that screams loud and clear that when God makes a promise, folks, He keeps His promise. How many of you saw the rainbow this week? Anybody? I was just, I was just driving. All of a sudden, I, I see a rainbow. That promise was even before David's promise. And the world has never been flooded because God keeps His promise. And even when it's the most heinous crime, the most heinous act, which David did, God cannot go back on His word. Folks, just as David had His promise kept by God, God kept His promise, God would keep His promise from then on. When He sent His one and only Son into the world as a baby who would grow up and take on the sin of the entire world. He would turn the world upside down. So the reason why Matthew put David's messed up story in Jesus' genealogy in his lineage is because it was the perfect illustration for the story that he was going to tell. And I think no one told the story better than the angel. In Luke, we find in Luke, the other place where the Christmas story is told, in chapter 2, verse 10, here's what the angel says. The angel comes and says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for... And what's the next word? What? All... The people. All the people. God is making a promise to all people. The good people, the bad people, the in-between people. The people who think they're better than other people. The people who don't think they have a chance. The people who think they're in with God because they went to church the last eight weeks and they uh, you know, served with the jar kids and they gave some money and they gave blood today. Surely those people are better than you. No, no, no. It says all the people. All the people. And if I have to earn my way to God, folks, I have no hope. Because I'm as messed up as what David was. Just in different ways. The angel said this, I have good news for all 
the people. God is giving a promise, not just to one person now. He's saying to all the people. Then in verse 11 it says, Today in the town of what? What's it say? What? Oh man, why do we have to put him in there again? No, 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 no. That's the point of the story. In the town of David. My hope is that from now on, every time in Christmas, during Christmas, from now on, whenever you hear in the town of David, you would remember David and what God did, the promise that he made. In the town of David, David the promise breaker, David the unfaithful, David the selfish, David the adulterer, David who wrecked his family, David who put a man to death. In the town of David, and what's the next two words say? What? A Savior has been born. He is Messiah the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, and check this out, folks. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace to those on whom His favor rests. Listen, folks, God has promised you, and God has promised me, peace. And the only way that you will have peace, the only way that I will have peace with God, is for God to remove the obstacle of peace. And do you know what the obstacle is for you to have peace in your life? Sin! Not that you guys ever do that. I realize I'm talking the wrong crowd now. The obstacle to peace in your life, it is sin. And the reason that some of you don't have peace in your life is that you continue to negotiate your sin. You say, well, God, I'm not as bad as that guy. Or, God, I'm not as bad as that person I work with. Or, God, I'm going to do better. Or, God, I promise this or I promise that. God, that happened when I was 18. I didn't know. And my mom. And the family that I was raised in. And, God, if you do this, I'll do that. And your whole interaction with God is negotiate, negotiate, promise, promise. And, God, I can't spend some time with you right now in prayer, but I'll I'll be at church next week, I promise. Let me just say, folks, you'll never have peace with God as long as you try to negotiate your sin. The only way, the only way that you can have peace with God is for your sin to be removed. The only problem is you can't remove it. If you could remove your sin, you would have done it a long time ago. And here's the ultimate message of Christmas. Jesus came to remove your sin so that you can have peace. Jesus came so that you, to remove your sin so that you can have peace. And don't start telling me how bad a person you are and what you did last weekend because I'll start doing David all over again. I'll go slower. Today there are many of you 
who do not have peace with God because you're still trying to negotiate this relationship with God through the filter of your failures or your promises or your sin. You can't have peace with God. You can't have the promise of Christmas until the obstacle has been removed. And that's sin. And the promise of Christmas is that God sent His one and only Son to remove all sin from all people. God is able once and forever, for all time, to remove all sin so that you could come to Him. Not on the basis of what you have done or not on the basis of what you haven't done, but on the basis of what He has already done for you. Because the Scripture is not about you having to do a whole bunch of stuff. It is about the fact that Jesus has already done everything for you. Because the truth is this. You can have peace with God in spite of you. I can have peace in spite of me. And you say, well, Chris, that sounds real great. I want to buy into that. That sounds like a good thing. But it seems so one-sided. It doesn't seem like I'm doing anything. I mean, it sounds like it's all for me. You're getting to understand it. Well, Chris, that just doesn't seem fair because... You don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I've said. You don't know what it's like. It seems like I'm getting the best end of the deal. Yeah. You're starting to understand. Because peace only comes when we embrace the promise of Christmas. And the promise of Christmas is forgiveness of sin and the gift of peace. And this happens not by our efforts, not by us promising something, not by hard work, but through Christ Jesus our Lord, because He is able, He is able to keep His promise. Your spouse might not keep her promise. Your kids may not keep their promises. People in your life may not keep their promises because they're not able to, because they sin. But the one who doesn't sin, He is able to keep His promise. So the question really becomes then, can I have peace with God? Can you have peace with God? And the answer is yes. But peace with God, folks, only happens in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe today is your day. Today is the day where you're saying, you know what, I'm putting my stake in the ground that today is the day in which I accept Him as Lord of my life. And if that is you, and God is speaking to you, don't let this day go by. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer here in just a second that I want you to pray out loud. Everybody's going to pray it so you won't be singled out. But we're going to pray a prayer out loud. Now some of you, you've already accepted Jesus as Lord of your life. But if the truth were known, you keep thinking you have to do a whole bunch of things for God to like you. So you keep on, you know, feeling bad all the time when you do things that are not so good. And you feel bad because you're not doing as much. And 
you think it's all about something that you would do. And if you do enough, then that will get you into a relationship with God. Then you'll have peace. It doesn't work that way. Or to be honest, maybe some of you are sitting there today and you're like, I'm not a religious person at all. Chris, to be honest, while you've been talking about everything, I've been counting the ceiling lights. And then I got bored counting the ceiling lights, so I started counting how many people. Looks like we're a little weak over there bunch today. Folks, I'm a preacher's kid. I know every ceiling counting game there is. In fact, I remember when we were, when I was a kid at Anderson, we would take Christmas songs or different hymns and we would put other words into them while we were singing it. And all of a sudden we would, you know, start laughing that we'd start crying and people would come up to us and they'd be like, Aren't they being touched by the Spirit? I'm like, no. I was just making fun of hymns, you know? And this is, I guess, what I'm saying. Is that if you're that person, I think this prayer that we're going to pray could be the best start for your journey with God. So why don't you stand and we'll pray this prayer out loud together. It's my words, but it really is your prayer. And so I invite you to just repeat this prayer out loud after me. Heavenly Father, I believe you are the great promise keeper. As you kept your promise to David, I believe you will keep your promise to me. To forgive me, to accept me, to love me. I will no longer come to you or avoid you on the basis of what I have or haven't done. Instead, I'll come boldly because of what you've done for me. Through Christ Jesus, my Savior, and my peace. Amen.